Good morning. It's uh, a blessing to be back home, uh, home away from home, I should say, uh, to preach this morning. And uh, because I am at home away from home, they gave me a real long, crazy passage to preach. Uh, when I first sat down and looked at it, I thought, how in the world am I going to preach this? Um, but the Lord always brings out great stuff from his word. And, and we're going to see some really great lessons, some great gospel in Judges chapter 9 this morning. So before we jump in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for bringing me back here to preach. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way, that you would get the glory. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach this morning. I'm weak, tired, but Lord, you are good and you will get the glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So pride is a dangerous sin. Uh, we see it and we despise it in others, but if we're honest, we also see it in ourselves. And presumptuousness, that's a big word, uh, is a particular form of pride that affects many, many people. Uh, and presumption is being excessively bold or uncharacteristically forward in a situation. We see this with arrogant, overconfident, boastful people. I'm sure you can think of some. But we all struggle with presumption from time to time. Uh, we, we think we're the guru on a topic, so we insert ourselves in a conversation. Uh, when we weren't married, we were experts on the ideal marriage. When we weren't parents, we knew how to raise young children. Uh, when we don't coach UK basketball, we know how to get them to a win, or UK football, we know what play to call and how to run so that we can overcome a 14-point deficit at the end of the game. We know how to run our companies better than our boss. We are sometimes presumptuous. Yet very few of us barge into the board meeting and put ourselves forward as the CEO. We don't go to the athletic director and tell him, make us the head coach. So as we look at Abimelech's presumption, we may think we're in a different category than Abimelech. He's next level, and there is a sense in which he is. And though we don't make ourselves kings or great leaders, the sin of presumption shows up when we try to overly control our lives. And when we get bent out of shape because we thought we would run our lives better and God had different choices for us. And that brings us to Abimelech. Abimelech's presumption reminds us to put away pride and follow God's humble king instead. I'll say that again. His presumption reminds us to put away pride and follow God's humble king instead. So um, we had verses 1 through 6 read to us, and our first uh, main point, the first area of focus this morning is we need to avoid self-appointed leaders and follow Jesus. We need to avoid self-appointed leaders and follow Jesus. Um, in Shechem, Abimelech, we, we've just seen Gideon uh, help Israel. He was a judge. And they asked him to rule. He said, no, I won't rule. Just build me this ephod and we'll be good to go. Well, by the time we get to chapter 9, Abimelech presents himself as a good candidate to be ruler and king. And I want you to notice how satanic Abimelech is. He goes in verse 2 and he says, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? But if you look at Judges... 
They didn't have rulers over them. They had judges. And Gideon had said, I won't rule over you because God is your ruler, your king. And so Abimelech goes and pulls a little Satan on him. Would you rather have 70 rulers or one ruler when really it's God is the king? But he tricks him. And so Luke Walker in his book, in him, or uh, he gave them judges. He says, Abimelech is a false judge, a usurper. In other words, he's an anti-judge. He ruled over Israel for three years, but he was never one of God's judges. And that's a big distinction because when we jump to chapter 10, we see judges again. But for, for this chapter, we don't see any judge. We see a self-appointed ruler. So how did he set this up? He went to his mother's family and he conspired against his 70 brothers. He asked that deceptive question in verse 2, which is better that all 70 sons rule over you or one? And then he pulled what we would call the race card or, or at least the family card. He says, remember, I am bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. In other words, that's a Jew. I'm one of yours. My mother is one of you. Pick me instead of all those guys. Why would you want to be ruled by the Israelite sons when one of the Shechemites could rule over you? And so in their prejudice towards Abimelech, they go to the leaders of Shechem. They convince them and they agree. Verse 3, it says their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for he is our brother. For he is our brother. The race card worked. The family card, whatever you want to call it, it worked. And so then uh, the leaders of Shechem, they accepted Abimelech. And then get this, they even paid him. They paid him 70 pieces of silver out of their idol temple. And with this money, what does he do? He hires worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And then in gruesome fashion, on one stone, he murders his 70 brothers, or what he thought was 70, but the youngest baby brother managed to escape, young Jotham. And then after the massacre, they get together by this oak of the pillar of Shechem, and they make him king. And this oak is actually an important place for the law in the days of Moses, and now they've turned it into this evil place. So what you have is you've got this self-appointed leader, all this deception, all this corruption, all this murder, all this evil, this worthlessness because of the presumption and the pride of Abimelech, but also because of the foolishness and the prejudice of the leaders of Shechem and his family. So, so I want to ask the question, where do we see presumption in our lives? Where are we like the leaders of Shechem? And I think the first place we see presumption is actually in our culture. We live in a culture full of self-appointed gurus and so-called self-made influencers. They presume the role of life coach, teacher, etc., and many of their followers jump on board with whatever they say, defending every word or action. We see it in politics. We see this heavily in the political realm. Self-appointed politicians convince us they're the person for the job because they're one of us. If I can get the blank vote, I can win this thing. So what do they do? They go after the people they want. We vote for person A because they're on our party. We vote for person B because they're not on that party. Or we vote for person C because they're part of neither party and they'll actually help us. But a lot of times they're self-appointed gurus. But then 
we look at our own hearts and we see presumption and pride. We over-curate and control everything. We try to play God. We think we know what's best for us, so we plan, but we hardly pray. We work, but we hardly worship. We try to relax, but we hardly rest in Christ. And when we set ourselves up on the throne of our hearts, instead of authority, we end up riddled with anxiety or anger. Anxiety because our plans might not work, anger because they didn't. So what's the way forward as we see presumption and pride in our hearts? And I think the answer is to keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. In many ways, Abimelech is a, as an antichrist or a shadow of the antichrist to come. And when we try to rule our hearts and control our world, we point ourselves and others away from Jesus. But let's look at Jesus and compare him to Abimelech. Abimelech, self-appointed. Jesus, not self-appointed. When Jesus incarnates and shows up in this world as a human, he had thousands of years and the whole Old Testament worth of prophecy before he ever showed up. He showed up with a forerunner, John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, when he prayed to his father, he said, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He lived his father's plan. Instead of living what the Jews wanted or what the Romans wanted or how we would live if we had the power of Jesus, he lived most of his life and did most of his ministry in a 10-mile radius rejected by the very people he came to save. Jesus was not self-appointed. Jesus was also rejected by his relatives instead of received. John 1.11 says that he came to his own and his own rejected him. His relatives thought he was out of his mind, we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. But also Jesus, when you compare him to Abimelech, he brought in some guys. They weren't worthless, reckless fellows. Maybe they were in their previous life, but they were ignorant, unlearned men but he transformed those men. And instead of committing murder and crime and evil, they spread the gospel around the world. Jesus was betrayed, get this, for a few pieces of silver by a worthless and reckless fellow, Judas. For a mere 30 pieces of silver, Jesus was betrayed. In order to spot the fake, all we have to know is who the real one is. And if we know the life and the story of Jesus, we can always see the counterfeit. The experts who can spot counterfeit money do so because they know what real money looks like. And so it is for us. If we can be so acquainted with the person and work of Jesus, we can spot fakes a mile away. So what does this mean practically? It means we got to watch who we follow we become who we behold, and as I've said, we are in the age of the influencer. The self-made man or woman is the pinnacle of our society. We have so-called thought leaders and authorities on everything from epidemiology to theology. You can hop on YouTube and watch hour after hour of experts talk on whatever topic you want because they decided to write a script and post a video. Be careful who you follow. We will know them by their fruits. 
We must constantly assess what our leaders are teaching us and whether it leads us to Christ. Is it in line with the word of God? Does it fit within our biblical worldview? Does their influence want us, make us want to be more like Jesus, more loving towards others, serving others, plugging into our local church, or do they pull us away from the things of God? When they sway us, where are we leaning? Those are the kind of questions we have to ask as people influence us and lead us so that we don't become like the people of Shechem. But next we see in our passage that we need to listen for God's voice in the proclamation of truth, and we need to follow God's good shepherd. Look at verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to me, Listen, or said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So he goes before them and he says, listen, if you don't listen to me, God is not going to hear your prayers. If you don't hear what I'm saying, you're messed up. You're going down the wrong path. And so when Jotham gets wind of what happened, he goes on a mountain and he cries out enough that the leaders of Shechem could hear him. And he speaks from a place called Mount Gerizim. And in the days of Moses in Deuteronomy 27, he proclaimed that half of Israel's tribes would stand on Mount Gerizim as a blessing for obedience, and the other half would stand on Mount Ebal for the curse of disobedience. So he stands on the mountain of blessing and proclaims a curse. He's letting them know you have made a huge mistake. And yet, they could have repented like the people did in Jonah's day in Nineveh. They could have repented. They could have turned. But as we'll soon see, they didn't. So the curse actually falls on them. And Jotham, in a prophetic fashion and in true parable form, he lays out this story, starting in verse 8. The trees went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to jump back to uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Just flip back one page. Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So it seems that Jotham's parable is about them asking Gideon to be a king and them being a ruler and them being so desperate for a ruler that they go to the bramble. And so 
a lot of the commentaries um, seem to think that maybe the four trees represent at least Gideon and his sons and his grandsons, and then finally, worthless Abimelech. The olive tree has great honor. I've got oil to produce. The fig tree, I've got figs and sweetness. The vine, I've got wine that cheers God and men. But the bramble, it's a useless, thorny bush. It doesn't have anything worth doing, so why not? I'll do it. Luke Walker, uh, again, in his He Gave Them Judges, describes bramble like this. A bramble produces nothing, not even shade. The bramble thorn bush is a product of the curse, Genesis 3.18, and yet the bramble is useful for something. It's very good at destroying other trees. Set it on fire, and it will consume a forest of good things. Abimelech is like it. They were so desperate seeking after a king that they chose the bramble, and finally the bramble said, all right, I'll do it. I'm glad to do it. He was willing to take the job if the people were serious, yet if they weren't serious, he promised, I'll devour you. I'll destroy you. So the meaning of this parable, I think, is twofold. He says to them uh, later on, he says, rejoice if you did what was right toward Gideon. So Gideon came in and judged, and he fought the Midianites, and Jotham says, if you acted in good faith and integrity, verse 16, when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, which we remember is all by the grace of God because Gideon is not a super great dude. But then he says, and you have risen up against my father's house and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, the unauthorized child, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. Obviously, they didn't do that in good faith. So he's letting them know, if you did this in good faith, rejoice. You all rejoice in each other. Great, hurrah, hooray, have your celebration. But then look what he says, verse 20. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. Let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So instead of rejoicing in one another, you're going to devour one another. And then Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? What do we do? At least one thing comes to mind. We've got to be attentive to the voice of God. We confess sin this morning. We've got to listen when God's word and when the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word and the conversations about the word, when they bring us to conviction, we've got to listen. Though Jotham wasn't a prophet in the formal sense of the word, he certainly spoke prophetically. Though he didn't say, thus says the Lord, he did proclaim the truth to the leaders of Shechem. He showed them how their sin was an offense to God, and he pointed out how their unrepentance would harm them and corrupt their leader. We, too, need to listen for the voice of God when people speak to us about our sin. What does this look like in everyday life? First and foremost, we need to be watchful over our souls. I don't mean uh, morbid introspection where you're always looking at how you think and how you feel and always beating yourself up, but 
and we don't need to primarily look at ourselves, but we do need to ask ourselves from time to time, how am I thinking? How am I living? Uh, I just saw a, uh, a title of an article called, Have You Lost Your Gospel Mind? And what he's asking this is, have you been so swayed by the world that you don't think gospelly anymore? That you don't filter your thoughts through the lens of Scripture? You don't filter your thoughts through the gospel? Are you just living like the world without the gospel as if the gospel is no longer, as if God doesn't exist? Are you a functional atheist in the way that you think? But next, we need to be well acquainted with the Scriptures. If we're going to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, we must be ready to hear God's voice, and he speaks loud and clear with authority through his Bible. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. A stranger calls, they don't respond, but my sheep hear my voice. If we don't know our Bibles, and then the world gives us these new ideas, these professing believers give us these new ideas, the news, politics, friends, influencers give us these ideas, what will we filter them through? We've got to be well acquainted with the word. And then we need to be sensitive to the good shepherd's voice in the context of everyday life. Sometimes Jesus will speak something to us through the word in our devotional time. And then again, someone in our lives, probably your wife or your kids or your friends at work, maybe a book, a blog post, a video, or even a passing comment will change your whole life. Or at least that week. Uh, I'll give you an example, a couple of examples from my life. So uh, there was a time where my kids were being rude and harsh to each other, and I was like, hey, we're going to hit Proverbs. A harsh word stirs up strife. Then I noticed that I was kind of snippy with Kim a little bit after that. And then she reminded me of my tone and was like, hey, that was, that was a little harsh. Then later, I used a harsh tone with my children, and as I'm uh, leading family worship, I say, how have you heard harsh words? Well, Daddy, what you said to me was mean the other day. I'm like, oh, okay. And then um, I realized that it wasn't the jerks on social media. It wasn't my annoying clients who were being rude to me on my Zoom calls. He was teaching me about me. And that came through me trying to help someone else. And so if I wasn't sensitive to God, I would not have known and been able to turn and repent. Um, but another time more recently, a uh, good brother uh, Josh Duncan was up visiting, and uh, I was just, we sat down for coffee. I was talking to him about my life, and uh, he was like, man, you need to slow down. Put, put some things on pause and slow down. And what's crazy is I had been reading and meditating and thinking about priorities and presence and what are my goals? Are they leading me to what God wants? And then I heard him say, you need to slow down. I haven't talked to him in like six years, and that was what he said to me. It was almost as if God purposely brought him to Kentucky for that specific reason to sit down for coffee with me and say, slow down. And did I need it? Yes, indeed. We all need uh, the Paul Washer moment. I don't know if you've heard of Paul Washer, but uh, once he was at a youth conference and he's, we don't need to be like Britney Spears. We don't need to be like the world. And everybody starts clapping, and then he stops, and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And then the whole thing shut down. Um, but, you know, sometimes we're giving the hearty amen, and we're the ones who need to hear it. We're thinking about how everybody else needs what God is telling us. we got to be attentive to God's voice. And then, lastly, we need to be quick to repent. Um, one of my mentors, his name is Derek, he, he always says, keep short accounts with God. 
And what he means is when God brings sin to your heart, confess it immediately. Deal with it immediately. Run back to Jesus. Don't play with it. Don't carry it. Don't wallow in it. Just go straight to Jesus. So when you are brought to uh, conviction, go ahead and repent. Turn from your sin. But then our final point, and this is going to take up half of the chapter, is we need to expect God's justice and rejoice in Jesus. So first we see Abimelech's rule gets cut short. Um, Read verse 22. It says Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. That's pretty short. And uh, it doesn't say he judged Israel. It doesn't say he was appointed as judge. It says he ruled, which is further evidence that he was not God's man. But after some amount of time passed, God sovereignly, verse 23, sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the reason is made clear in verse 24, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. So it was justice. All of this evil spirit, this treachery, all these things that are about to come are for judgment on killing those 70 brothers. But next we see in verse 26, Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So this this treachery uh, shows up, and they put confidence in a new guy. Doesn't that show you how weak these people are? First, we pick our relative. Our hearts are inclined to him. All of a sudden, new guy shows up. Time to put confidence in him. Now, obviously, we know there's an evil spirit, but there's something about these people that they're just all over the place. They're double-minded. And they threw Gaal, a big festival, celebrating with wine in the house of their idol. Look at verse 27. They went out into the field and gathered grapes from their vineyards, tried them, and held a festival. They went to the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. New guys here, forget Abimelech. And Gaal said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Doesn't this sound like the beginning of the chapter? Some new guy shows up and presumes, if I were your leader, I would do this, this, and this. Well, guess what? Verse 30, Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his anger was kindled. All right, you say all that, back it up, because that's what's coming. And so Gaal took Abimelech's method and flipped it on him. Think about that for a second. More pride and more prejudice. Why would you want to serve this guy when I'm of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the father of the city? Why don't you go back to the family of the pioneers, the original Shechem people? See how that works? If you get deceived once, you'll probably get deceived twice. If you're prejudiced for one guy, you'll be more prejudiced for the next guy. We can't live making foolish decisions over and over like this. And so as an application, be wary of winning people with pride or deception or prejudice, because if you can win them with sin, someone will be more crafty than you. And on the flip side, if you're won over by witty, crafty, deceitful people, there's always going to be someone more skilled coming to win you over in all spheres of life. We've got to be careful who we choose as leaders and influences in our lives. 
I hope you see that. I hope you understand that. But even the treachery of Shechem was short-lived. Verse 31, Zebul sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Zebul, one of the only faithful guys in the whole group to Abimelech, sends a secret message and says, they're about to try to ambush you. Come on, send an army down. We're about to take care of business. So Abimelech follows his instructions. They set up an ambush. They come down. And I just want you to read verse 41. Sorry, not verse 41. Verse 40. Abimelech chased Gaal, and he fled before him. So remember, he was running his mouth. If I were this big guy, I would do this, this, and that. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so they could not dwell at Shechem. So big mouth, big boy, got put out really fast. But then, in verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city that day. He captured the city and killed all the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sold it with Saul. The ruler of the city just absolutely decimated the place. Left it as if a tornado came through and then just sold it with salt, so nothing's going to grow up there anymore. Then, he's not done. He's still got more vengeance in his heart. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard it, verse 46, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Bereth. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Abimelech went up to the Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood, took it up and laid it on his shoulder. He said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, Hurry and do as I've done. So every one of the people cut his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. More carnage, more murder, more treachery, more death. But I want you to notice what he did. Verse 15, it said, if you are, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Fire came out of the bramble and devoured the cedars of Lebanon. Devoured the people literally. But then verse 50, he's still not done. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. They went up on the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire, again, fire to devour. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. What a twist of fate, or should we say sovereignty of God. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. We say of him, a woman killed Abimelech. He couldn't hide it. Just like they couldn't hide the resurrection of Jesus by making up a lie, they couldn't hide the shame of Abimelech. And when the men of Israel saw that he was dead, everyone departed to his home. What a bland ending to a chaotic story. 
But this is what God had in mind. He said, I will bring about justice for those 70 sons of Jeroboam that you killed, not only on you, but on the people of Shechem. And they both were devoured, just as Jotham said to them. And look at verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. If you notice, we haven't heard much from God in this chapter. But we know, just like in the book of Esther, God is here working sovereignly in the background. And there are so many times in life Where are you, God? I don't see you. I don't hear from you. He's working it out. He's bringing justice. And I want to say this because I know there are some hurting people in here who have been hurt by leaders like Abimelech, who have been hurt by prideful, presumptuous people. They do hurt people. Sometimes we are hurt by presumptuous leaders. But God sees us. Jesus looks upon us with compassion as he did Israel. He saw them under the oppressive rule of the Jewish elites and of Caesar. He was not apathetic to their suffering. In fact, he saw their suffering and he was filled with compassion because he saw sheep that were being oppressed. And I want to tell you this morning, we can and should desire for repentance and faith. When people hurt us, Jesus does say pray for our enemies. But if there is no repentance, it is good and right to desire ultimate justice for them. It's also good and right to desire justice if people have violated the laws of the land. Jesus brought the ultimate justice for sin on the cross, and he will bring final justice to all who reject him. There is a tension there for us, but we don't have to feel guilty about living in that tension. If you have been hurt by leaders who are prideful and presumptuous and evil, It is good and right for you to desire their their repentance, but it's also good and right to desire justice. I don't have the answers to how to work that out, but God is gracious and he is with you in that mess. You're not the mess. They are the mess. They cause the mess. But Jesus is going to come back and fix it all, okay? And I, I, I hope that you're feeling a desire for justice in this story even. Abimelech is a horrible, treacherous leader. And he had a horrible, treacherous group of leaders in Shechem. He had worthless, evil men around him. And in the end, they all got what they deserved. Because of their sin, though, thousands of lives were lost. Cities were destroyed. And then everybody just went home. You made a huge mess. You died. All those people died. And everybody just went home after all that carnage. And as we think about that evil... We rightly desire justice. Pride deserves justice. Prejudice deserves justice. Treachery deserves justice. Deception deserves justice. The wages of sin is death. And Adam all die. They got exactly what they deserved. And so did the people who allowed these wicked men to rule over and lead them. Hamas deserves justice. There is evil in this world and they deserve justice. Yet we all ought to see ourselves in the story as well. Some of us are like Abimelech and Gaal. If we had the power, we would boost ourselves up. 
Others of us are like the people and leaders of Shechem. We receive people with clever arguments and ideas. We know inside that there's got to be a catch to this. But we press on for pragmatic, personal, or political reasons. Whether we are deceivers or whether we are deceived, we have pride, prejudice, jealousy, treachery, and deception in our hearts. And we deserve the very justice of Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Yet God sent us a Savior. Is that good news this morning? We deserve what Abimelech and all that those people got. But instead, God sent us a Savior, a King. So as we finish up this morning, fling off your pride and follow God's humble King. If we, in Christ, we don't have to die for our sins. I want you to see all that Christ wasn't. Christ was not a self-appointed leader. He was not a treacherous, prideful, boastful man who couldn't back up a loud mouth. He wasn't longing for men to rule over him to give him a false sense of security. He never deceived, and he was never deceived by the powerful, influential people of his day. He never sinned, not one time. But let me tell you all that Christ is. He is God's appointed leader and God's given Savior for us. He is a faithful, humble, and gracious king, and he can back up all his claims, and he will fight for us, and he did fight for us, and he did win on that cross when he said, it is finished. He does intercede for us at the right hand of God. He didn't long for men to rule over him because he was under the rule of his holy father while on earth. And now he reigns with his father in heaven. He upholds the universe so that he needs no earthly or universe security. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. He is all powerful. He is the all wise son of God. He is flawless. Behold this savior this morning and believe in him. He died the most shameful death, though he was completely innocent, unlike Abimelech. He took a death on the cross. He did it for the glory of his father and for the salvation of all who would trust in him. And then after that death, he rose again and displayed to the entire universe, the entire cosmos, who he is. Will you trust in this Savior today? Will you rest in this Savior for your salvation? Will you put aside your pride and your presumption and your desire to control and curate your life and existence and trust in him and lay it all at his feet? We will either receive God's justice for our sin or Jesus will. And the difference is very clear. Those who trust in Jesus have their sin paid for. Those who trust in themselves will pay for it on their own. We have two options. And I call you this morning to follow Jesus, the good shepherd. He will lead you down the paths of righteousness toward eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for this gospel message, Lord. Thank you for Judges 9. Thank you for showing us Abimelech's pride and presumption as an example of what not to be. Thank you for showing us that he is an anti-judge, an anti-Christ. Thank you for showing us Gaal's pride. Thank you for showing us the foolishness of the leaders and people of Shechem. But God, more than that, thank you for showing us the glory of Christ. If we look to these examples, we can feel like we're better than the, those guys, those people. We would never do such things. 
But, Lord, we know and you know that our hearts are sinful beyond all measure at times. And though you made us good, sin has indeed tarnished us. But you sent a Savior. You sent a greater than all the judges. You sent a ruler and a king who would not abuse us or be treacherous toward us, but would rather be humble and call us to follow him as he leads us to life. Lord, help us to follow Jesus today. It's in Christ's name. Amen.